Matthew 27. So, yesterday evening, Terrain, who is, um, he's one of the new boys at my house, he's five years old, he came walking out of the kitchen and he had this 12-inch long serrated kitchen knife, yeah, and it's one of our best ones, you know, it's a uh, wust hole, so it's like an expensive knife, and so my wife sees that, and she's like, Terrain, what are you doing with that knife? I'm like, Terrain, if you're going to take a knife, take a junky one. Come on, bud. <laughs> Don't take our best knife. And my wife's like, what are you doing with the knife? He's like, I got to go outside. I need to sharpen this spear. I'm like, well, it's probably not the best idea, bud, so give me the knife. So he took the knife from him and put it away. And about five minutes later, we're like, where's Terrain? And we go outside, and he's outside, and he's got his spear, and he's now on the pavers, and he's sharpening the spear on the pavers. Like, buddy, dude, you got to give this up. Something bad's going to happen. Today he gets home from school. Guess what he does? He sharpens a stick again. Guess what he's going to do tomorrow? And we keep warning him, dude, this is not going to end well for you. You and sharp sticks are not good. You're going to bleed. This is not good. But he's not heeding our warning. He keeps ignoring over and over and over again. All right? That's the outline of the first half of Matthew 27. That's it right there. If you remember that, you remember the first half of Matthew 27. Because what you see is they hatch this plan, hey, we want to make a sharp stick. And then, then there's these continual warnings like what you're doing is wrong. Stop it. But they're not heeded. And then the end is, of course, the crucifixion of the really only truly innocent person that has ever existed. So that's where we're going. Verse 1. Here's the plan. Verses one and two, we get the plan that launches this section. When morning came, so we have, last week we talked about chapter 26. It's that trial of Jesus at night, illegal, wrong, all that stuff. Jesus goes through a total of six different trials. He's on trial. They decide there, they get some false witnesses that lie. They decide we're gonna kill him. So picking that back up, because there was the, the story of Peter kind of brought in there. This is what happens to Peter. What Jesus said came true. And then it's now recapping. Here's where we're at. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. I, I call this... Hell's huddle. We're going to take counsel. What was the counsel, right? They already knew what they're going to do. Let's put this dude to death. And then they have to go get Pilate. Now, why do they want to get Pilate? We have to go get Pilate in here in order to put Jesus to death. Now, there's the idea, and there's a truth to it, that because Israel was really a subjugated state under Rome, that they no longer had the right for capital punishment. But honestly, it never stopped them before. We'll get to Acts 7 at some point again. And they grab this dude named Stephen. They don't wait for Pontius Pilate. They don't wait for Rome to okay it. They take him outside and they stone him. They're going to do the same thing to James, the half-brother of Jesus. They wanted to do the same thing to Paul, but Paul was rescued from that same attempt. So it's never stopped them before. 
If they want to kill somebody, they're going to do it. Here's what I think, and it's just me. I think they knew this is so illegal. We want somebody to stamp it for us. We realize what we're doing is so illegal. Like, he's done nothing to deserve death. We want some semblance of order and rule. If we can just say, hey, Pontius Pilate said it was okay, then we're good. So now they're really, they hate Pontius Pilate. You read uh, old historical accounts of the way the Sanhedrin and the Jews viewed Pontius Pilate, they despised him. But if they can use him, oh, they certainly will. So that's what they're gonna do. And what we're gonna see now is just event after event warning them what you're doing is wrong. The first warning comes from a very unlikely source. Look at verse three. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. If you read chapter 27, blood shows up so much. That word is just over and over. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. The chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. How fascinating is that? Why is it blood money? <laughs> What's wrong with it? You just paid a dude to do something. Why are you guys calling that money blood money? Because they knew. We, we put a hit out on somebody. That's what we just did. This money, this money's tainted. Like they're admitting it. So they took counsel again and they brought and they and bought with them the 30 pieces of silver, the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been sent by, the, by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave to them the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Okay, warning number one comes from who? Judas, of all people. The betrayer comes and he's like, stop, stop. But instead of stopping, when he throws the money down, verse six, the chief priests, what do they question? Not, hey, are we doing the wrong thing here? Hey, hold, hold on a second, big picture. Let's step back here. Hmm, are we making a mistake? No, what do they take counsel? What do they start debating? What should we do with this money? Right? They care more about money than the life of Jesus. And so they take this counsel and they buy a field. It, it reminds me of like a really bad mobster movie where a mobster like goes into a house and assassinates the family and the kids and the dog and then sits down on their computer and like pays for his child's violin lessons. Like, well, you know, well, I'm here, I'm as well. It's like, it's, it sounds like that to me. Like you guys are so calloused. You're not gonna step back for a moment and be like, hmm, maybe we should think about this. No, instead they're like, we should buy a field to bury strangers in. Like this money could do some good, right? Like we've always needed that in Jerusalem because here's what happened 2000 years ago. If you died, like today, if we die, if you die in Hawaii or Europe, you just get 
yourself put in a coffin and get on a plane and you're sent home and everything's fine. You get buried where you want to be buried. All right, 2,000 years ago, if you traveled to Jerusalem, which lots of people did, if you died there, you got buried there because you're not transporting that, that body home because it's going to putrefy and it's just gross. So you had to have a place like, it's necessary. We need a place to bury these strangers that come here and they die. So they're sitting there, this is beautiful, right? This is working out so well. We, we get to kill Jesus. The one witness that has a case against us just died. We got our money back and we get to buy this really great place to take care of this problem in our city. Man, God is just with us. Wow, this is awesome. It's all working out. It's just insanity, isn't it? It's just insanity to me. But that's the way they're thinking. All right, now there is one controversy in this section because verse nine says this. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And then it talks about that text. If you've ever tried to find this quotation in the book of Jeremiah, good luck, because it's not there. So what do we have? Is this an error in God's word? Here's my thought on it. And I'm going to continue to hammer this idea into your brain. We want to do this to the Bible. We don't want it to be, let's say Matthew, we don't want it to be a first century book. We want it to be a 21st century book. And so we want it to look like and sound like the way that we write books today and the way that we look at things today. But it's not. It's a first century book. If you're ever gonna understand what Matthew is saying, you better figure out what he wanted to say in the first century. And then it's called contextualizing it. Okay, we got what he wanted to say in the first century. Let's figure out how to apply that today, okay? So that's always important. It would be like this. It'd be like you and me being transported back to the first century and trying to explain to a first century person uh, what our morning looks like, right? I get in this metal container, and I start it up. It doesn't have any horses, but it goes really, really fast. And then I'm, and I'm kind of tired, so I stop at this place, and I wait in line behind all these other metal boxes with other people in them, and I show up at this little place. It's called Dutch Bros, and there's this really happy person that tells me really cool things, and then I get this brown liquid, and I drink it, and I become really happy too, right? What would they do? They'd be like, you are a witch. I'm killing you, right? It's the same thing, and if you don't contextualize, really figuring out the context by which the book was written and what they're trying to say, you'll always make mistakes. So here's what I think happened. So Gordon Lightfoot, I enjoy his writing. He says, here's what took place. Scrolls were very expensive. One scroll would cost you a year's salary. So imagine trying to buy the Old Testament, right? That's a, that's a lifetime of money. So you didn't. So there were scrolls that you could go and check out if you wanted to. So in Jerusalem, there was a set of scrolls in the temple and kind of around there that you could use, all right? So what would happen is if you wrote the, the scroll of Jeremiah, for instance, there'd be some room at the end of that scroll. So you didn't waste that because that was precious real estate. So you would add on to it some other little books, maybe Habakkuk, maybe Zechariah, because this quotation is found in Zechariah. But if you wanted the scroll, you, that scroll would be called the major prophet that contained it. So if you said, if you went to the temple, you'd say, I want the scroll of, Isaac, of Jeremiah. So if you're trying to check out Matthew, which he's, 
He gives you these little signposts. Check me out, man. Check out what I'm saying. Go look at it. Go grab the scroll of Jeremiah. Check it out. Read it, and you'll find this quotation. But it wasn't in the book of Jeremiah. It was on the scroll of Jeremiah, and then the tag-on book would have been Zechariah. So that's what Gordon Lightfoot says, and I tend to agree with him. So we have to realize Matthew's writing to a real group of people in the first century, and he's explaining to them real things and giving them, hey, here's how you check me out. Go grab the volume of Jeremiah. Read it. You'll find this quotation. So to me, that solves it. If you want to check it out, you can. The big thing that happens in this chapter, though, is you have Judas hanging himself, and he's gone. A man who spent three and a half years with Jesus. And this is his end. Say, wow. Did Jesus fail him? Or did he make choices? I think he made choices, obviously. And I think parents, sometimes we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. And when our kids do things that we're like, oh, we think, oh, I failed them. Now, we can put obstacles in our kids' paths, totally. I deal with it all the time with parents. You're putting an obstacle in your kids' path, man. Why are you doing that? But kids also, at some level, they start making their own choices and making their own decisions, and it, it's out of our control at that point. So Judas here starts making really bad decisions and heads down a terrible, terrible road. And he finally gets money. We know this. We know Judas liked money. Because the other gospels tell us he was stealing from the money bag. He's a money dude. And I said last time when we looked at chapter 26, I think me personally, I think the reason why Judas betrays Jesus is he married Jesus for the money. And when he figured out, I can't get my hands on the money, if you would, I'm in this relationship because I want something from Jesus, not for Jesus. It's he's gonna give me something. Remember that analogy? If you weren't here, I don't have time to unpack it. But he, 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 didn't, he, he wasn't around Jesus for Jesus. He was around Jesus for what he's going to get me. And when he figured out, I'm not going to get that, he cashes in. Well, I can get 30 pieces of silver from him. So he gets what he wants, and then he hates it and throws it back. Ever happened to you? Man, I just, if I just had this, and you get it and you hate it. If I just had a man, <laughs> and you get him, and you hate him. <laughs> Look out. Psalm 106, 15, one of my favorite verses. God gave them their request, but sent leanness to their soul. We just so often try to just stuff in the wrong things. And it doesn't matter if it's the wrong thing. It'll never be right. Judas, if he just had money, and he gets it, and he hates it. And he throws it down. And it says here he changed his mind, verse 3. What is that? Does he repent? The word there in the Greek is meta melomai. It's different from the normal word we use for repentance, which is meta noie. It's a different word. It means, for the most part, I mean, there's arranged to it, it means really, I regret this. I'm sorrowful. I wish this didn't happen. 
I think you hear this echoed by Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.10 where he says, godly grief or godly sorrow leads to repentance that brings salvation. But worldly sorrow brings death. What's the difference between the two? I think this is the difference. And I'll explain it with an analogy or a story from one of my kids. So one of my daughters loves candy. To this day, the way into her heart is candy. So when she was about four years old, she had gone to a birthday party and she came home and she had this bag of candy. And it was around supper time, so I asked her, I said, please don't eat your candy until after dinner because it's gonna ruin your appetite. You know, my mom did it to me, I'm doing it to you. So she's got her bag of candy and five minutes later I look over and I see brown stuff on her face and I'm like, are you eating your candy? And she's like, no, I'm not eating my candy. Like what's in your mouth? She's got like five Jolly Ranchers in there. Like what's on your face? I think it's brown marker. I was playing, I was coloring. I'm like give me, your, give me your bag of candy. So, so I took it and I put it on the countertop and I said, and, and then I, I, I said, I don't know when you get that back. She changed in a moment. She came up, she grabbed the hold of my leg. She looked at me, Daddy, I am so sorry. A real tear, like a real tear, like appeared and like rolled down her cheek. I'm like, wow, you are just like your mother. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I'm so kidding there. That is just cheap. I'll get it. <laughs> I said, dinner time, sit down. So I sit down, she sits down right next to me. She's eating all her food. And when she's all done, she goes, Dad, um, now that I'm done, can I get my candy back? And I said, I don't think so. I don't think you're gonna get your candy back today. And then she snapped again. She said, well, then I will go over to that counter and I will get my candy. I said, what? (laughs) And, And I don't usually play this game with my kids, but for some reason I said, well, then I'll just take it and I'll put it on the top shelf. She said, I will get a chair. I will scoot it over that counter. I will climb up there and I will get my candy. I said, no, you will not. You will go to bed right now. She said, I will wait till you are asleep and I will come downstairs and I will get my candy. I was like, ah! <laughs> Godly regret or worldly regret? Right? She was just sorry she got caught. She was really sorry about disobeying me, right? I'm willfully going to transgress you. I'm going to tell you I'm going to do it, right? That's, that's what I think with Judas. He's just sorry the way things turned out. He's not sorry that he's the type of person that could do this action, that he is so broken that he requires somebody to help him. He, that's, not, that's not where he's at. That's repentance. Repentance is, man, I am sorry that I am the kind of person that can hurt another person like that. I am so broken. Who's going to help me? Who's going to fix me? That's repentance. That leads to salvation. That's not where he was at. There's no, hey, God, help me. Hey, hey God, save me. There's none of that in here. It's, I don't like how this is turning out. And then he goes and he kills me. Kills himself. Sad, totally sad. So that's, that's this, this first warning. Look out. You guys are heading the wrong direction. But they plow ahead. Bring in the pilot. So they bring in the pilot, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, 
you have said so. That's a heart, it's just sulago in the Greek. It's you say. Okay, you say. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Here we see power. We see power. First, you've got Pontius Pilate. He's got the thumbs up you live, thumbs down you die power. But then you see a different kind of power. You see Jesus's power. And Jesus's power causes Pontius Pilate, who has military might power, it causes Pontius Pontius Pilate with all of his power to be like, bro, I'm greatly amazed at you. You are being derided and accused and lied about, and you're just sitting here silent. You're not going to answer any of this? Oh, I've been in hundreds of these cases. I've never seen this before. How hard is it not to answer someone that's accusing you? Right? How hard is it to not respond when somebody, like, comes against you? It is hugely hard. So, a couple weeks ago, it was my wife's grandma, Margot, her 90th birthday. It happened to fall on a Wednesday night. It was the Wednesday that I was not here. So, um, we had this big birthday bash for her. A bunch of family flew in. Friends flew in. And we went to Kobe Sushi of all places. I don't know why, but that's where she wanted to go. So, okay. Kobe Sushi it is. When you're 90, you eat what you want. So, we went to Kobe Sushi. And we're there. And everybody's kind of dressed up. And we're having a great time. And then about 7.30, I had to go pick up our two new boys um, from a visit they were having. So I drove over to pick them up at Morrison Park, and I kind of get out, I'm looking for them, and I'm walking. I'm just walking along, and, and I walk by these, this, this group of people. There's two ladies and this guy, and they had some kids playing on the playground. And I just walked by and didn't think anything about it, turned around. As I'm walking back, one of the ladies must have said something to this guy, and this guy is like, you know, he's smaller, and he's wearing like real baggy pants, and they're sloping, no, no belt, and he's got like a triple XL duck's jersey on. Um, those are a lot more available right now. <laughs> used to only be the Beavers one you could find like at every thrift store. Now I'm seeing a lot more of the other ones. They're like, oh, well, okay. You're not wearing that anymore. So, so you know, I'm just like, oh, okay, whatever. So it, it, it must have said something. And, and this guy looks at me, looks at me, goes, what, that dude in the goofy shirt? I was just like, says the dude in the triple XL duck uniform with no belt. Like, I, I could not believe how riled I got. Like, I just wanted to like, what? You are going to talk to me about style? I mean, really? It just, it, I, it, like, I could not believe it. I had to bite my tongue not to say anything. The next morning, I read this text. I thought, if that got me riled, how, how much self-control would it take for Jesus to be, I'm not answering these charges. If you have kids, you know this, man. They want to justify themselves. Time to hear from me. I'm going to tell you what I need to tell Right? It's in us. How radically powerful is this? And Pilate marvels. I can't believe this power. I've never seen somebody with that kind of self-control. The good news is, Galatians 5.22 says, you and I have access 
that same source of power. We don't have to be popping off at people. We don't have to be causing things to grow hotter, trying to justify ourselves in every situation. We can be those of self-control. Amazing. So now we get another warning, two of them in a row. We see the people's choice and Pilate is warned. Now, verse 15, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Bar Abbas. But when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Bar Abbas or Jesus, who is called Christ. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Bar Abbas and destroy Jesus. The governor said to them again, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Bar Abbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Christ who's called to Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. They're just getting into this mob mentality. Pontius Pilate, at this point, he just wants this thing out of his hair. Like, how do I get away from this thing, right? So he has this guy, Barabbas, some manuscripts, and I think they're actually the right manuscripts, say his name is actually Yeshua Barabbas, which means Jesus, Aramaic bar is son of the father. So you've got Yeshua, Barabbas, Jesus, son of the father, and then Jesus, son of the father, or Jesus called the Christ. How, fat, how thick is that story? Like, you're like, wow, this is phenomenal. And so what Pontius Pilate does is he brings up Barabbas and he says, hey, Barabbas, the notorious guy. Do you want me to let him go? Why do you choose the notorious guy? No, he's stacking the deck, right? He's trying to stack the deck. He's trying to say, it'd be like me saying, hey, would you rather release Jesus or Charlie Manson? Right? You want Charlie Manson on the, on the street again? Do you want him out here doing the crazy stuff he does? Right? Do, who, who do you want? He chooses the, the, the most notorious duty can to try to stack it and say, no, we obviously want Jesus let go, right? Here, I want this thing out of my hair. Let's choose, choose this notorious dude. I mean, really? You want Manson running around? Barabbas is the guy that steals and kills and destroys the murderer. Or Jesus, the guy that's kind and says, turn the other cheek and compassionate. Like, who, they're like opposite ends of the spectrum because Pontius Pilate is trying to figure out how do I get Jesus out of here? Now, why would he do that? Well, it tells us in our story, right? Number one, he knew, verse 18, it was envy. He's not guilty. The chief priests, the elders, 
They're envious. That's, that's what they're trying to do. This is motivated by envy. And then secondly, he gets a warning from his wife. And his warning from his wife is, don't have anything to do with this guy. He is a righteous man. I've suffered much because of him in a dream. So he gets this like warning from his wife. Look out. <laughs> don't do whatever you're gonna do. Don't do it. Just a side note. If you're married, listen to your wives. How much history has been broken because men have not listened to their wives? Like we need that. Do you know that? Men, do you know that? Like you need that. You need, when you get married, you get stereo vision. And it's like, if you don't use your wife, you're like looking at life through one eye, no depth perception. Because we're so different, right? And it's so needed that we're different and we look at life differently, it's beautiful. We need that, right? I'll give you a story that shows how different we are. So have you heard of a bobby car? Google it. They're only like 18 inches long. They're made in Germany, but they will take 250 pounds. So in Germany, these big German dudes, they race on bobby cars against each other. So we went to this birthday party a while back and they had this steep driveway that does this big S turn and the kids were, they were racing on these bobby cars, just flying down and racing and racing. And then the host said this, okay, dads were racing each other. So all the dads were given a little bobby car and we all got the top of this, this stretch and, and I'm a little bit competitive. So I, I get on mine and, and, and I'm gonna win. I'm gunning to win. So everyone takes off and, and, we, we, and I'm in the pack in the beginning and we hit that corner and two guys roll. And it's skin, asphalt, ow, right? But I make it through them, end up in first place, and I'm just going, yeah, as I took first place. Okay, that was the guys. And so he goes, okay, guys, ladies, same thing. Ladies get up there, they get all ready. Bobby Carrice takes off, there's a pack, same corner, two ladies, skin, roll over, ouch. Guess what? All of them stopped. I'm like, Charity, represent, go! Go! Come back, you're not gonna be able to do anything right now anyways, go! <laughs> if I live my life that way, it's brutal. I so need my wife. I wanna look out through two eyes. Listen, listen to your wives. Listen to her. And now what we see is his entire plan backfires. I'm grabbing this notorious dude. It's like Charles Manson. Obviously, they're not going to want him. <sighs> but instead, what happens? It backfires. And they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So Pontius Pilate's sitting there just going, oh, my goodness. Man, I wish I was in Rome with a martini. <laughs> right? I can't believe this is happening to me. Oh, I was supposed to play golf today and this. Right? He's just like, ah, what do I do? What am I going to do? I'm faced with this dilemma. It's really, really sticky. Got this mob now, and they're starting to kind of coalesce in this mentality, and I've seen that before. But I got this guy that my wife is telling me, don't have anything to do with. He's in a sticky mess. What's he going to do? Well, verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am 
innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. That is a controversial verse, is it not? Remember Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ? He had that verse, that statement in the Passion of the Christ to begin with, and then he pulled it out. Because much evil has been done to Jewish people because of this verse. Much evil. Then he released them. He released for them Bar Abbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. I say, Pilate punts, right? I'm not going for that. I'm punting this ball. He attempts to. Wash my hands. Okay. You know what? Is he guiltless? Is he guiltless? He knew it was envy. His wife warned him. He said, I can't find a fault in the guy. And yet he's saying, you know, I'm good. I washed my hands of this. Not my problem anymore. Hmm. Really? What would you do? There's this ABC show. I've never actually watched it, but I, I've read about it. And it's called, What Would You Do? Who's seen that? Anybody? Yeah. I've never seen it, but it sounds fascinating. Because they set up these scenarios with these hidden cameras, and they have actors doing something controversial, and then they have people that have no idea that it's happening like that, watching it, and what do they do? How do they react? Right? A foster parent just berating a foster child. Are you going to step in? A really old person stealing like a PS3. <laughs> what are you going to do? I mean, you're old, man. I guess if you need it, take it. I don't know. <laughs> right? Just these really just fascinating scenarios. A wedding guest stealing like a wedding present, like, hmm, I got a blender. All right, let's go. <laughs> You're just like, oh, man. What do you do? Most of the people did nothing. Right? Sometimes they did. I mean, so there's really, you know, great hero stuff, but a lot of people just, oh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm washing my hands of that. No, I can't do anything. Hmm. I sat and I, and I meditated on this this morning. I thought about this, you know. Is he guiltless? He washes his hands of it. How often does that happen where, where things that we know are wrong, we just kind of, hmm. Like the, the, the most famous one is 1964, Kitty Genovese. Right? She's stabbed at like three in the morning. She yells at him and stabbed. 38 people, as the story goes, witness it, see it, do nothing, the guy leaves, comes back 10 minutes later, finds her, rapes her, and kills her. 38 people sat on the side. You got, you have, you're, Google it. I mean, it's just, you just go, oh, my goodness. What would I do? In a sticky dilemma, like Pontius Pilate's in right here, what do I do? Do I do the same thing? Do I have little rituals that, that I think, oh, clean me of guilt? Oh, you know, I'll just do this and I'm good when it's inconvenient or hard situations. Like maybe it's a person that I need to deal with or a situation I need to deal with. So I know, you know, if I call them at this time, I'll get their voice message and I won't have to really deal with it. And then I'll just kind of, I, I tried. Or maybe I'll tell somebody else. If I tell somebody else, then, then it's kind of their responsibility. You know, I'm guiltless now. I, I told you, now I'm out. 
as I thought about this more and more, I just think, you know what? I'm Pontius Pilate. I'm Pontius Pilate. I wash my hands of very hard things. They're like, oh, well, you know, I, what can I do? I'm, I'm just, I'm ju- just like him. But I'll tell you this. I've never regretted when I've done the right thing. I've never regretted when I've done the right thing. I've really regretted when I'm like, oh, you know, it's hard, and so I'm just, okay. He's not guiltless, but neither am I. So then Jesus turned over, and we'll finish with this little section. Then the soldiers of the governors took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took a reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. This little section right there, say, how broken is humanity? How broken is humanity? Let's take this dude... You know, these Roman soldiers don't know who he is. All right. Let's twist together some thorns and crush it into his head and then beat it in with a stick. Like, how? <laughs> you ever had, you ever had a, a nail or a thorn go into you deep? I have one time. We were, we were watching these five boys. Their, their parents are like, hey, we need a break from our five boys. I say, oh, I can see why. Bring them over. So I thought, what are we going to do with these five boys? So I said, let's make an outside table and some chairs. Let's do that. So we went down to our barn and we're building. And I'm not very safe. I'm just not a very safe person. But I was trying to be safe. I'm like, be really careful. You know, look out. These are dangerous tools. So I'm, I'm showing like the middle kid. He's like 10 years old. How to use a, this. I had this brad nailer. A brad nail is really kind of thin and long. It was two and a half inches long. I said, you got to make sure and keep your hand away because you never know what the nail is going to do. Because the, the wood grain and that kind of stuff will move it around. Well, I'm, I'm working away. And there's this one board I needed, like, together, nice. So I put my hand a little bit close, shot into it. It hit a knot, turned 90 degrees, and just went right through my index finger. Just it's sticking out. I'm like, ah. Immediately I thought, that's going to hurt. And then my next thought was, how do I hide this from these five boys? Like, <laughs> but he was right there looking. And so he looked at me and goes, Mr. Heverly, does that hurt? I said, well, hmm. No, I, I do this pretty often just to remind myself that I'm alive. You know, sometimes you just need pain to know you're alive. No, could you hand me the pry bar? I need to get this off of here. Right? I was just like, ah, that hurt. That's one. 20, 30, banged into your head. I've been to Jerusalem. I was just there. There are these bushes. They're unbelievable. Like you just brush up against it. And you're like, ow, man, that hurt. Crown of those things. Crushed into his head. And, and you just gotta ask like, Why'd they do that? Like you read this and you're like, what's the purpose? Yeah, what, 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 why do that? He's going to go be crucified. Why do that? 
what in the world? What in the world? When you read this, you just say, how broken is humanity? How broken are we as a people? How broken? If you don't realize that, you're just going to get closer to some of it. Get involved in foster parenting. You'll see it's broken. Join Rebecca Bender Ministries and you'll see it's broken. Go to the mission, Gospel Rescue Mission. You just see brokenness because verses 27 through 31 are repeated thousands of times every year in our world. Just why? Because we're broken. When you read this, you see the necessity of the second half of chapter 27. Okay, we need the cross. Oh my goodness, we need the cross. We are so broken. Unless something's done about my brokenness, I'll be verses 27 through 32. I'll be it, and I don't want to. Hmm. So after reading this, you say, well, who's at fault? Who's to blame? Judas the betrayer? High priest who bought their position, you know, years, years from the Hasmonean dynasty. That's how they got into power. It was no longer the sons of Aaron who were the high priests. They had bought it with them, and now they're trying to just maintain their power. Like they're just power hungry. I'm maintaining my power. I'll do it under anything. I'll kill to keep my power. Is it the high priest? Is it Pontius Pilate because he punted, right? He delivers Jesus over, verse 26, to be crucified. So is it him? How about the people? The mob mentality where this people just, hey, crucify, crucify, crucify. Is it them? Because maybe if they hadn't done that, Pontius Pilate would have had an out somehow. But he was afraid of the mob. Maybe it's the soldiers that literally, physically carried out the act of crucifixion. Who's to blame? All the above, right? Yes. Yes. It's all of them. It's me and you. One of my favorite pictures is Jack Straw has it. And it's this guy who's got a hammer and a nail in his hand. And he's exhausted, right? And then behind him is a figure that's holding him up, and there's fresh wounds in his hand. It's a classic picture. I am. It's my, it's my mob mentality. It's my washing of my hands. It's my overlooking. It's me. It's you. It's us. That's why it's wrong when verse 25 gets abused the way it does. So what do you do about that? I can get sucked up into a mob mentality. What do you do about that? I just not being a pawn in these kind of things. It's interesting, I was reading about like mob mentality and how that stuff works recently. And they found this, the number one thing that fuels mob mentality, you know what it is? No opinion on it. That fuels it. Like, I don't really have an opinion on that. Should we crucify him? I don't know, what do you think? Crucify him. Yeah, kill him, right? It's like, if you had a strong opinion, like not to crucify him, then you won't do it. But if you don't, then you're swayed by somebody. Like, yeah, hey, you know what? We should crucify him. I thought that was just fascinating. And in fact, that idea is used by advertisers all the time. We don't have a strong opinion on something. They know they can get you because they'll give you an opinion. Kim Kardashian uses this one. Well, okay then. That's the color for my house, right? 
I don't know what toilet to use. I don't know what sink to buy. I don't know what, you know, all the, what, what, what do they get you with? This is a bestseller. Everyone else is buying this one. Oh, well then throw me in. That's mom mentality at its finest when you don't have a strong opinion on somebody, something. How do you go against that? Get a strong opinion. Like my strong opinion is this. I want my life to look like Jesus's. If the ultimate goal for me is to be conformed to the image of the son, then guess what? I'm gonna live like Jesus is right now. If that's where I'm going to be at some point, if that's my destiny, then I wanna start taking steps that say, hey, there's my strong opinion. I want that. But it's more than just, you know, what would Jesus do, that whole side of things. It's the other thing, because here's why I think Judas failed. I think Judas failed and hung himself, and here's why. Because Judas could not imagine a world where he, forgiveness was great enough to take care of him. He couldn't imagine a kind of world where, would there be enough forgiveness for me? He couldn't imagine that kind of world. It reminds me of uh, Les Miserables, the antagonist, right? Have you guys seen, who has seen that? Is that like, am I, okay, all right. You should see it. There's some good movies. You'd see the play, it's better, but there's some good movies about it. It's just a brilliant, it's one of my favorite stories, hands down, right? So the inspector, Inspector Javert is, is this guy who's, he's just, he's, he's a fascinating character, but he can't imagine a world where Jean Valjean, this bad criminal, could possibly become the kind, compassionate, caring person that he is. He can't imagine that kind of world. That doesn't work. That never works. And then at the end of the movie where he sees it actually did work because Jean Valjean saves his life from a mob, what does he do? He commits suicide. No, I can't imagine that world. The clash of what I think is, is the law and, and what would be immoral now to turn in Jean Valjean, they're, they're clashing so hard, forget it, I'm out. I can't imagine a world that's that, that, that good, right? But you and I can because we see Jesus. You and I can because we have the good news. Jesus is the antidote to all those things. He's the strong opinion. He's the one we look to. He's the one I say, I'm modeling my life after that. Turn the other cheek. I'm not living that way. No way. I'm not going to be these kind of soldiers that do this kind of stuff. No, that's wrong. I have a strong opinion on that. Why? Because we're created in the image of God, and every image matters, and not treating people that way. That's what happens. That's how you change. It's looking at the cross. And what you see in chapter 27 is brilliant. The cross changes. At the cross, all of a sudden, Pontius Pilate, he's like the lion in the, witch, in the Wizard of Oz. He all of a sudden gets courage, Right? He's like, what I have written, I have written. I'm not going back. Joseph of Arimathea, this hidden kind of guy that doesn't like really want anybody to know he's a disciple of Jesus, all of a sudden he's gets hurt. No, I'm coming out. I want that body. The soldiers that had beat Jesus and nailed to him to a cross declare, oh, he's the son of God, right? Because they get courage. Because now they have a strong opinion. You want to go against the flow in life? have a strong opinion about Jesus. That's my goal. That's what I want to be like. He's where I'm headed. He's who I'm being conformed to. He is the new humanity that I am starting to try to live that same way. And one day I will be like him because when I see him, I'll be like him. Amen. Father, what a hard section, but so brilliant because it demonstrates 
your incredible love for us. That you who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So we thank you. I pray that each one of us would have a strong opinion on things that really matter, how to treat people with dignity, with care, with love, with kindness, how to do what's right even when it's hard, how to not wash our hands of things that are inconvenient because love is always inconvenient. Oh, help us in these things, Lord. We need your spirit to empower us and strengthen us to live those kind of lives. So we ask, Lord, that your word, which was so rich tonight, would water that incredible seed and produce fruit tomorrow, Friday, Saturday, this month, this year. May it produce fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.